KMTT, Kimitzion Torah. You're listening to the Erev Shabbat program. Erev Shabbat, Kaftet Tammuz, Erev Shabbat Kodesh, Parshat Mas'ei, and Erev Shabbat Rosh Chodesh, Menachem Av. The Erev Shabbat program is Lilu Nishmat Shlomo Yosef Ben Chaim Shmuel. And I am your host, Jonathan Snowbell. Parshat Mas'ei. Once again, we have to point out that I don't even know when the next time we'll read Parshat Mas'ei by itself, a very unique Shabbat in that sense. Shabbat Rosh Chodesh, as we pointed out. Another interesting note to point out, a very, uh, I don't know, I'm not sure how unusual it is, but uh, not regular in any case. This is a Shabbat that we read um, that Aaron Cohen died on the first day of Av, and Shabbat is the first day of Av. So we read in the Parsha, Perk Pasuk Lametet, Ve'aron ben Shalosh, sorry, of course, it wasn't Menachem Av then, it was just Av, and it wasn't Av either, it was the Chodesh HaChamishi. Be'echad on the first day. So on Rosh Chodesh Av is Aaron HaKohen's Yortzeit, and this Shabbat we will read about Aaron HaKohen's Yortzeit on the, the day of the Yortzeit. The Parsha is extremely organized into sections. We have the first two Aliyot, Dealing with the Masaot, moving from place to place in the during the forty years in the Midbar, the second Aliyah, sorry, the third Aliyah, dealing with the inheritance of Eretz Israel and the borders of Eretz Israel, the fourth Aliyah, the new Nisiim that will be involved in dividing up Eretz Israel with Yoshua, the fifth Aliyah, the cities of the Levim, the sixth Aliyah. Aremi Klat, the cities of refuge, where the someone who murdered accidentally will run to. And finally, the seventh Aliyah, which is some sort of epilogue to the story of Benot Slavchad and who they are permitted to marry in order to keep the Nachala that they res- will receive from their father within Shevet Menashe. There's a lot of different things to talk about. I want to talk about several things, but really I want to talk... The first thing I want to talk about is a pasuk that's been troubling me for years. I can't find good answers to. And if someone has a good answer for me, I'll be happy to hear it. Something to talk about around the Shabbat table. As we pointed out, the first aliyah, the first two aliyot, deal with the masaot, the travels of Bnei Israel, as my father likes to say. The the format is vayisumi point A, vayachanu point B, vayisumi point B, vayachanu point C. Of course, he also reads it with a trop. And it's, it's very technical. And here and there, the Torah throws in an extra half-sentence about what exactly transpired there. And as a question in general, and a, we'll point to a specific question in a moment, why does the Torah within this framework decide sometimes to make a point to say what's happened there? But the, the Matan Torah in, at Har Sinai doesn't warrant being mentioned. Kriya Yamsuf somehow gets some sort of backhanded comment via Avrubetochayam Hamidbara. They they traveled, they crossed through the sea. Doesn't explain how, why. Many different great events took place at these different places, and nothing is mentioned. And then we mention Aaron Cohen dying in Harahar. Two Psukim in the middle of of the Masaot are dedicated to Aaron Cohen's death, which has been mentioned before, but yet, in the middle of the Masoda, it has to be mentioned. But this earlier Pasuk really catches my attention every year. And the 
the Nanos, the, the Nose Kalim, the, the Parshanim, the commentaries have already pointed out this re- repetition, Bachodesh Harishon, Bachamishasar Yom Lachodesh Harishon, and they discuss what they discuss. And the Egyptians are burying all of those who were killed by God, all of the firstborn that were killed by God. And so, once again, Rashi and some of the other commentaries discuss this. What is this Mitraim Mekabirim? Why is it discussing that the Egyptians are, are burying? And they answer, oh, in order to point out that they were... They were watching Bnei Israel leave. The, the answers to my to my uh, liking are not uh, so satisfying, but for the following reason: they are they are burying their dead. It doesn't I don't even think it mentions in Sefer Shemot that the Egyptians buried their dead. Why not? Because of, of course they buried their dead. Of course they were busy that day uh, with their own troubles after Makat Bechorot. But that has nothing to do with Bnei Israel. Bnei Israel are are are, are leaving Mitzrayim now. And whatever the Egyptians are doing, the Egyptians are doing. They may be banging their heads into the wall, but that doesn't interest us. So it's not mentioned in Shemot Amitraim Mekabarim, and it's it's not necessarily a very interesting point. Rashi says, Trudim Be'avlam, they're busy with their mourning. So what? And furthermore, and especially here, why why do we have to know here that they were burying their dead in the middle of the Masa'ot? Out of all the different pieces of information that we could have mentioned here in this chapter, which is a very, very non-detailed chapter of one point to a second point, to a third point, to a fourth point, we have to mention that the Egyptians are burying their dead. Till this day, I have not received a, an ample answer, and even with the tools that I've picked up here and there in learning Tanakh, I have not been able to come up with an answer that satisfies me. And at this point, I once again invite the listeners who may eventually sit down at a computer and remember that they listen to the Arab Shabbat program to write to jsnobel, S-N-O-W-B-E-L-L, at gmail.com or to write something on the website to, if they have a good answer to this question, why the burial of the Egyptians was an important thing to mention, not in Shemot, but here in this parak, which is just a list of the travels of B'nai Israel. Moving along, I want to discuss... Another point, and it's a point of responsibility. And responsibility is an important point to talk about today because we have difficulty taking responsibility for our actions. And the parasha of Aremi Klat, the laws of the cities of refuge, really discuss responsibility. And they put it to us in a very, very strong way. We We are talking about a person who is killed accidentally. That means, for example... A person may be walking up a ladder with an axe. They're chopping away with the axe at the branch. And then at one point they pull back and the axe falls out of their hand completely. Or perhaps the heavy metal part of the axe falls, slips off the axe. The axe falls down, hits somebody in the head, kills them. Not only is this person who is killed accidentally required to spend the duration of his years until the death of the Kohen Gadol, which could be the rest of this person's life, living in an Irmiklat, not in his house, not with his land, or as it's called in the terms of Chazal, he's Chayav Galut, he's obligated to be in Galut. Galut does not mean necessarily Chutz it means to be banned, exiled. He's exiled from his house, from his land. 
And he lives in this city of refuge for, as I said, all the years until the Kohen Gadol in that time dies, which could be a week or it could be 40 years. But if he leaves the Irmiklat, if he leaves the city of refuge, and a member of the family of the person who was killed, then the Goel Hadam, this family member, is allowed to kill him. And it's interesting. Because if we read the Psukim carefully, we'll notice that at times, the Torah refers to this person who killed accidentally as Amakeh. And at other times, the Torah refers to him as a murderer. If the murderer leaves the city, and the Goel Hadam is allowed to kill him, and he's not held liable for killing this person. What are we saying here about responsibility for our actions? person accidentally was climbing a ladder, hacking away at a tree. The, the axe fell out of his hand and it killed the guy. And the rest of his life he spends in a city of refuge. He's called a murderer. If he leaves the Irmiklat, the family member of the person that was killed can kill him. It's an amazing thing we're saying about the responsibility of our actions that we're not allowed when we're dealing with dangerous items to not take things seriously and to be a little bit lax. And recently in the news here, there was a story of a officer in the army who let his underage son drive a, whatever it was, a jeep or some other army vehicle. Is that the way we educate people towards responsibility? We'll break the rules a little bit. This person here in the story in the Torah did not break the rules. He went up a ladder. He, he used his axe to cut. But could he have been more careful? Could he have been more careful when he's dealing with such a dangerous item? Is there room here to maybe fence off the area that we're working? Because an axe can fall from our hands. And even if it is an accident, it will be extremely dangerous if it does fall. And therefore, if we're dealing with dangerous things, if we're good people and we have no bad intentions, but we're going to make sure no one gets hurt. And if someone got hurt because we depended on the fact that we'll be careful, but we didn't tell anybody not to cross by here, we didn't check that the axe was attached properly to the handle, we weren't holding on to that axe for dear life, we weren't warning people not to come into the area, all of that makes us responsible for what happened. I'm not a murderer on the first degree. But the Torah goes back and forth between calling me a makeh and a rotseach, a murderer. At the end of the day, if I didn't take the proper precautions, I'm a murderer by accident, but a murderer. A murderer whose life will be now turned upside down and will live in a, re- a city of refuge. A murderer who if they s- I step up one step out of the city of refuge at the wrong time, I will be fair game for the relatives of the people that I killed, the person that I killed. A tremendous responsibility is put on our human actions, not only what we do purposely, but even what we allow to happen because we are not careful, we are not cautious enough. This doesn't have to be limited to, of course, murder. We can be not careful with our words. We can be not careful and not see what's going on when we're driving, when we're raising our children, when we're interacting with people. It could be physical pain, it could be spiritual pain. And we're constantly demanded to not only be in charge of the decisions that we make intentional actions that we do, but the residual actions that can come out from our actions. 
We're responsible for that too. We're human beings. We can make mistakes, but we can also be held accountable for the mistakes that we made. And on that note, while it is Aaron HaKohen's Yortzeit the Shabbat, Rav Tavori will not be speaking about Aaron HaKohen, but about Rav Chaim Ozer. So we will now give over the microphone to Rav Tavori. This week, Hey Menachem Av will be the Yortzeit of Rav Chaim the great Diana Vilna, leader of world jury. Reb Chaim Leiser was born in 1863 in Belarus to a family which had been Rabbanim for many years. His father was Rav of the community for 40 years and his Zayda, his grandfather, had been the Rav of that same community for 40 years before that. He was brought up and quickly established a reputation as a true Torah genius. At a young age, he went to Valazhin, where he learned in the Beis Medrash and became a Talmud of Reb Chaim Brisker. When his reputation was so well known, many people looked for him as a son-in-law for all kinds of shiduchim that were offered to him. With, under his father's advice, he married a granddaughter of Rabbi Yusuf Salanter. The, the father, his father-in-law, Rabbi Chaim Reza's father-in-law, was Rabbi Lezer, who was the son-in-law of Rabbi Yusuf Salanter, who himself, Rabbi Lezer, was the Dayan in Vilna. When Reb Chaim Eiser got married, he expected to continue learning for years. However, his father-in-law was Nifter at a rather young age, and Reb Chaim Eiser was chosen to be the Dayan in Vilna in the place of his father-in-law. He was very young, approximately 22, 23, when he was appointed to be Dayan, and he really stayed there in that position for 55 years. It was interesting to see how history, in a way, repeated itself. Years later, Rav Gustman, one of the great Tamini Chachamim of our generation, the author of Kuntrusei Shiurim, the Rosh Hashiva of Netzach Yisrael, was also appointed Dayan in the Bezdin of Vilna, Rav, Rav Chaim Eiser, supported the candidacy of, of Rav Gusman, who also became a Dayan in the base Medrash of Vilna in the place of his father-in-law at a very young age. In Vilna, Rav Chaim Eiser did not really have a, a yeshiva in the sense that we call a yeshiva today. He also never printed, at least to the best of my knowledge, shiurim, on Mesechtas, like other Rashi Yeshiva, like Reb Rachber, like Reb Shimon. But he did have a sort of a learning group of people that came to learn with him. In those days it was called a kibbutz, a kibbutz, where different people came. Some of the people who learned with Reb Chaim Eiser in Vilna include Rabbanim who became world famous in their own rights as Rashi Yeshiva, as great leaders of world Jewry, for, as, for example, Rav Moshe Shatskis, who was known as the Lam Jarav, 
who later on became a Rebbe in Yeshiva University, he was the Masmich of Yeshiva University. Another person was Reblazer Silver, who later on became the very famous Rav in the United States, who was very active in all kinds of community affairs, and also was a fine Tamit Chacham, who published Svarim called Anfeyeres. One more person that was in, known to have been in the kibbutz of Rab Chaim Eiser was Rav Moshe Avigdor Amiel, later to become the Rav of Antwerp and eventually became the Rav of Tel Aviv, a great Tamid Chacham who wrote Svarim like Midos Lechaker HaAlacha, Darchim Moshe Derech HaKinyanim, who was also known as a great Darshan, Chief Rabbi of Tel Aviv, who started his own yeshiva. All these people were Talmidim of Reb Chaim Beis Medrash in Vilna. But his fame was not in the yeshiva world. What he was really famous for was he was the Posek. He's the person that everybody turned to when they had an important Shaila. Even the Chafetz Chaim was said to have consulted Reb Chaim and would not do things of any importance without consulting Reb Chaim In a way, more than the known posek of the generation, Reb Chaim was the community leader of the generation. Nothing was done without his specific imprint upon it. He became one of the founders and obviously one of the leaders of the Aguda organization. The organizations that were founded at that time were basically led by Chaim Eiser. And he was a great leader in the Vada Yeshivas in that organization that continued in Eretz Yisrael to support Yeshivas. When they arranged a, a smaller group of Rabbanim that was called the Moetzes Gedolei the, that council of Torah sages, Reb Chaim was obviously elected to it, and in fact became the head of the Moetzes Kedar He's famous for many psakim, which were sort of revolutionary. They say that in his approach to electricity, he felt that the electricity had the din of Eish, and therefore to demonstrate his psak, he used to make havdala. When he made havdala, he made a bracha bar on electricity. Later, other gedolim have dealt with the issue of electricity, specifically, Rabbi Shlomo Zalman, as a young man, wrote a whole sefer about electricity and halacha. And certainly, he had to contend with the ideas and psakim of Rabbi Chaim Eiser. Other areas that he was very well known for were in the issue of Gerus, which of course is so relevant today. He had a major discussion with the Dvaravram, with the Kavna Rav. The issue that they debated, which is printed both in the Dvaravram and the Achiezer, and in the Chuvas of Reb Chaim Eiser, known as Achiezer, there is a discussion what constitutes Kabbalah's mitzvahs. They both assumed that without Kabbalah's mitzvahs, Geirus is not valid at all. 
when you say Kabbalah's mitzvahs is a conditia sine qua non, is ma'akev in Gerus, they base themselves on the Rambam who says that when a person enters the covenant and wants to, as it were, lehistofeif tachas kanfei ashchina, he wants to, wants to enter under the wings of the Shechina itself, he has to do the following. Rav Salavechik explained this to mean that the definition of Geirus is to accept Torah mitzvahs. It's not one of the acts that you have to do in order to accept Geirus. In order to become a Geir, you have to go to Mikveh, you have to have a bris. In the time when it was possible, you would have to bring a carbon. But it's not that, well, one of those things means you have to accept Torah mitzvahs. He said, that's the Yisod, that's the essence. What is Geirus? Geirus means to accept Torah mitzvahs. And if a person does not accept Torah mitzvahs, then he's not involved in Geirus at all. It's not that he's missing one of the mitzvahs of Geirus. What would happen to the scenario that a person thinks that he accepts all mitzvahs but one? So, both Reb Chaim and the Devar said that would not be Geirus. But what would happen in a different case? Where a gear came, a potential gear would come along and say, "I will accept Torah mitzvahs, and I know that I should accept all the mitzvahs, and I really do, but I have a weak uh, yetsa, I have a strong yetsahara and a weak yetsahatov, and I'm afraid. I think that I will do this one avera." Now, all the people who are consider themselves fine Orthodox Jews would be hard-pressed to say that there's not one Avera that they sometimes transgress out of personal weakness. This is, in a sense, what the ger, potential Ger is saying. I wish to accept Torah Mitzvahs, but I know that I have a Yetzirah, and I will do one particular uh, Avera, I will try to avoid it. The Reb Chaim and the Dvaravram argued whether this would indeed be considered Kabbalah's mitzvahs. The tshuvas, as I said, are printed in both in the Achiezer and the Dvaravram. In general, the Premeiser's opinion about modern issues was rather one of a chumrah. The opposition to Zionism was very well known. Premeiser not only was opposed to secular Zionism, but he wrote a famous letter against modern Zionism, including the people who wanted to become religious Zionists. In a letter that has been well publicized, he said that some of the Rabbanim have come to start a religious Zionist organization called Mizrahi, but I agree, I think that this is a disgrace. They have rejected the opinions of the Gedoli Hador, and he was very, very critical of them. Of course, let us remember that Reb Chaim was Nifter in 1940, 1939 or 1940, when we think about 
the future, the, the years immediately after Reb Chaim Eizer's Ptira, we wonder what his opinions would have been. What would he have thought in later years? Reb Salavechik was a relative of Reb Chaim Eizer, and I once heard when I was young that Reb Chaim Eizer was very concerned about life in America. The uh, feeling in Europe in general was that America is a treif in Medina. America is all treif. And many people felt that anybody who goes to America automatically will not stay religious. They say that when Rabbi Salavechik decided to go to America, Reb Chaim Eizer said, I don't have to worry so much about America. Because Rav Yashabir has such kochos, he's so, such, so capable that he can take care of America all by himself. When Reb Chaim Eizer was nifter, the Aguda, of course, held a session in his memory. His funeral is well documented. The Gedolim who spoke at the funeral in Europe were the Gedolim of the time. The funeral itself was a little unusual in the fact that at that time, when the Nazis were already in power, there was a little bit of fear if they could really have a public funeral. The Some of the people that spoke were really nervous that the... Uh, People could would interfere, the police would interfere. The Gdolim who spoke included Rav Zalman Saratskin, who became later known as the Rosh Hashiva, the author of the Maznaim Lataira. Rav Mashashatska spoke, the Vilna Magid spoke. Many different Hespedim were done, and apparently the soldiers had respected them and they indeed preserved the dignity of the funeral. In America, the Aguda held this memorial session and they asked the Rav to speak. Rav Salavechik was the main maspid at the Aguda convention to commemorate the life of the great Gaon and Sadiq Ibrahim Those people that are curious can read the Hesped that is printed in a Sefer that collected different articles of Rav Salavechik, a Sefer called Divrei Hagut Ve'aracha, which contains a number of essays about Gedolim and did contain, in fact, some Hespedim of Rav Salavechik. He compared Rav Chaim Eizer at that time to the the leaders of, of Kal Yisrael in different dimensions, in the dimensions of Torah and the dimension of, dimension of leadership, which really encompassed, in a sense, the life of Reb Chaim Eizer, the major posek of Vilna for 55 years, the major posek in Europe all those years, and a dynamic leader of, in, the, in the community, the head of many of the important commi- committees. Rabbi Salavechik's Hesped is still being studied and learned to understand both Rabbi Salavechik's thoughts and the importance and the greatness that he 
explained was the life of Reb Chaim Eiser. Thank you very much, Rev Tavori. And with that, we will be wrapping up another Arab Shabbat program. Thank you to all our listeners. And once again, think about Mitzrayim Mekaberim. The Egyptians buried their dead. And why it was important to write in this week's Parsha. Think about your responsibility and the ramifications of your actions beyond the in- what you intended to do. There are ramifications to your actions. And finally, once again, if you are willing, if you have something to write, please write to the Arab Shabbat program, either on the website of KMTT, or you can write me directly at jsnowbell at gmail.com. Shabbat Shalom. Chodesh Tov. May we have a good Menachem Av, an Av which is Menachemas, and not only an Av, in which we mourn. Shabbat Shalom and Chodesh Tov.